Our study this morning will be from John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. So I invite you to turn with me there uh, in, your, in your Bibles this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, it might be helpful just to have a little bit of context as we have an opportunity this morning to peek into the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a probably, many scholars believe, less than 48 hours before he is on the cross. And he is expressing himself, how he is feeling, what he is thinking. And we have an opportunity to look into that as we come to his word this morning. A reading this morning again, John chapter 12, beginning uh, with verse 27 and continuing through verse 36. Hear the word of God. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we come before you and we consider your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us through it. That we would see Jesus, not only because he is depicted upon the page, but that we would know his heart. For Lord, you have sent him that we may know who you are, that we may know what you are like. And so therefore, allow us to see you in him. You've also sent him that because we who believe are being transformed to become more like him. And I pray, Lord, that we would see him for as he is, that your spirit would enable us, that we might be changed, that we might be a people who walk in his light, that we might be a people who have the joy and the comfort of knowing that you are guiding us. Bless us, we pray, as we study your word this morning. Speak to us not only by the gifts you've given us of our intellect, but by your spirit. We pray this in Christ, our King. Amen. Well, as many of you know, the Olympics have begun. Like many of you, I imagine, I was Friday night watching the opening ceremony. And uh, it's always a fascinating thing. Uh, something that I assumed I might get grow tired of over time, but I'm just fascinated with all the nations as they make their profession, uh, the procession coming in uh, and, the, uh, and the, uh, just the, the, the celebrations that go along uh, with the opening of the Olympics. I'm also intrigued with the stories that go behind the scenes, the ones that the networks go to great lengths to be able to show us, the backstories of the athletes who are going to participate. Networks long, learned long ago that those who are watching uh, may enjoy the games, but they enjoy it all the more when they are 
able to feel they can identify with the athletes that are, are participating. That the Olympics are more than just a time of indulgement in obscure games, uh, but and, and, and a time to be impressed with the, the skills uh, that a bunch of athletes have. Uh, but it's an escape, it's an opportunity to, to feel like you have some part, whether you're cheering for the athletes from your nation or from those whose stories are particularly compelling. They realize that if the watchers knew something about these people, knew the hurdles in their personal lives they've had to overcome in order to get to this level of excellence, that the people would be more intrigued to watch, uh, and they would continue watching, and for the network's purposes, then more watching, more commercials, more money. Uh, but for those who participate, there's more enjoyment in, in the game because there's more of the sense of vicarious connection with those who are performing. As I was watching Friday night, particularly the, um, the collage of quick stories that NBC had put together of the athletes from different countries, it struck me that there is something in that connecting that is similar to what I find in the passage that we have before us this morning. You see, we know a lot about Jesus. If you've been in the study, we've seen his miracles, we've heard his teaching. And if you've been in Bible studies or in church any length of time, we are told a lot of details about him. We know that he is fully God and fully man. The scripture testifies to that, and we see the evidence of that in this particular passage. And the writer of Hebrews, trying to help us understand that he identifies, that Jesus identifies with us, tells us that that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. But he has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet he is without sin. And while that's wonderful to know that we have a high priest, that we have a God who identifies with us, I, I have to confess that I, I don't necessarily find it easy to identify with him. It's not that I don't worship and I don't believe, but when I think of the things that we know to be true of Jesus... It's just difficult for me to wrap my mind around that. The idea that he can be fully man and fully God, a concept that theologians refer to as the hypostatic union, which is defined as he is both man and God, two natures without mixture or confusion. And he may not be confused, but when I think of what does it mean to fully man and fully God, I find myself kind of dizzied a little bit and, and feel somewhat confused. And that he lives this life, but we've just watched. You know, he can speak and dead arise, and he can spit, and people that are blind can see. And part of me thinks, okay, I'm glad he's for me, but when I'm facing my problems, I have no power whatsoever. I rarely have problems fixing the problems that I, ability to fix the problems that I've caused, much less the ones that are just part of life, that are bigger than I am, and yet, how do I relate to this guy? See, we see his performance, and we are impressed with his power, and we are interested in his teaching. But God is calling us to walk with this man, with Jesus, to identify with him, not just to believe that he can save us, but the joy comes in him, not just from him. And, and what I find in this passage is that we get to peek behind the curtain somewhat. We are able to peer into the life of Jesus, into his person, into his passion, into what he believes to be his purpose, and then we also are, have an opportunity to see how people respond to him. 
So as we look at our, uh, our text this morning, those of you who like alliteration, you're in luck. We're going to roll with the peas today. And my hope is that we will come away with a greater appreciation of who Jesus is because we are able to connect with him when we see the backstory and not just the big story. First, we see the person of Jesus, and I believe what the passage is telling us is that the person of Jesus is somebody that we can identify with. The first thing that we see that Jesus is saying here as he's praying to God, now is my soul troubled. And we can sympathize with that. We might recognize that we have our own angst at times, own difficulties, but it might also be quite possible to look at this passage and just think Jesus was having a bad day. You see, the Greek word here of terrasso is not something that translates easily into our English, at least not simply. Troubled is right, but it doesn't do justice to it. The word terrasso is the word that the Greeks would use when they were uh, talking about their boiling water. So when the water was moving from bubbling and simmering into now bigger bubbles and tents and, and, and moved to a boil, uh, terrasso is the word that describes that. And Jesus is saying, my soul, the seat of my emotion and of my being feels like it is boiling. My, my, I'm on fire. And we get a sense of his discomfort when we understand what he's saying there. It's the same word that was used a chapter back when Jesus was standing before the grave of one of his closest friends, Lazarus. And, and around him, Lazarus's sisters are, are crying, and they're not just kind of sobbing, but they are wailing. And we're told Jesus' soul was troubled, was boiling before Jesus himself wept, before Jesus bawled, we see that still, at this point in time, interacting with these people, that he is not just having a bad day, but that he has an intense problem, an intense angst in his life. Which begs the question, why was he struggling so much? Again, we know that it was only a few days before he would go to the cross, whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday, scholars are not sure, but it's quite likely that he was less than 48 hours away. And he was fully aware of everything that was going to happen. He was fully aware of everything that was, uh, he was following and uh, aware of the time to come in. He knew when it was the hour and everything was unfolding. There was nothing that was a surprise to him. And Jesus was about to experience something that he had never experienced before. You see, John tells us at the beginning of this uh, gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then skips ahead a couple of verses and said, and then the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us for a while. In other words, Jesus is that Word, and Jesus has always been with God the Father, and Jesus himself is God, and, and he has always existed within that unity. And, and yet we're told by Paul, looking backwards, describing to us what Jesus had done on our behalf, is he said, here's what happened on the cross that Jesus was looking forward to, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. In other words, Jesus who himself had always had unity with the Father and always been the essence of righteousness and godliness, who despised sin, he was going to not just 
be charged with our sin, take our sin upon him like he was putting it on like a shirt. But the, the graphic language is he was going to become sin. He was going to be the embodiment of that sin, and the full wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. That itself is troubling. We can understand why somebody would be anxious if that was going to be the case, that the full wrath of God, I mean, just think about the full force of the United States military being turned against your house. And that's nothing as compared to the power of God. And yet even as troubling as that is, I don't think that it was the, you know, a few, uh, you know, thorns or a few punches or even a few nails that he was as anxious about, as true as that was. But Mark in his gospel tells us that at the last moment on the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus' heart was troubled because for all of eternity, not just all of his life, but all of eternity, he had been in perfect fellowship with his father. And now, in just a few hours, that relationship, that identity, would be severed. He was what he despised, and he was alone. And we can get a better picture then of why Jesus was feeling significant angst. He's not just going through a bad day, but his soul is boiling because this is not the way things are supposed to be. Jesus says, as he goes on in the prayer, and he's talking to both God the Father and sort of talking to himself at the same time. So what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this. Now his answer ultimately is that's not the way that we're going to go. But the fact that he brings that up is an indication that that was on his mind. In other words, he was suffering such angst at the anticipation of what he was going to experience. He's thinking, maybe we'll do another way. I really don't want to do this. So maybe I can pray. And he thought, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to pray that. I'm not going to pray that this be taken from me because this is the purpose for which I have come. But we see in him somebody who experiences to intense level the kind of angst that we experience when we are facing things that frighten us, when we have experienced loss, when we are in the midst of our pain. The fact that Jesus is fully God and he is able to do miraculous things does not mean that he is unable to identify with us. And I, because of the times in my own life and feeling deep angst, see that he identifies I can get my arms around someone like this. He's real. He gets it. He knows pain. In fact, he knows pain to a level that I will never have to experience. This is the person of Jesus, fully man, fully God, but he not only relates to us, but we are able to relate to him. He's not immune. And then we see a little more of him. We get to know him a little bit more because one way to know somebody is to know what their passions are. And we see Jesus reveals his passion in this passage as well. And the passion of Jesus is the glory of God the Father. Because when Jesus was wrestling with this question, what should I pray? What should I do? 
Should I pray that God would deliver me from this moment? And as he realized it's not what he was going to do, he says in the midst of his suffering, in the face of his suffering, he says, Father, glorify your name. See, this was his passion. What he wanted above everything else was that God would be glorified. That was the consuming focus of his life. And even he was willing to engage in and, and experience immense suffering and even separation from God for the sake that God would be glorified. And the reason I find this important for us to be reminded of is because it's opposite of so much of what we tend to think in our songs, in our devotional lives. We focus so much on God's love for us that we lose sight of the fact that Jesus' primary focus is not the people, but God himself. We don't see Jesus anywhere in here saying, I don't want to do this, but you know, I'll take one for the team. Somebody's got to do this because if nobody dies and becomes the sin on their behalf, then they're up a creek. And certainly that was part of it. He was aware of that and, and his love compelled him. But here's his prayer. And here's what we see overwhelmingly in the scripture. His primary focus, his primary passion was that God would be glorified. And it's important for us to recognize because we are so tempted to think in terms of the world revolving around us that we think that Jesus' primary focus was us. In fact, there's a wonderful hymn, that our new contemporary hymn that Michael W. Smith sings that, that I really, really like, except for that little heresy part um, <laughs> that, that, um, that says, you know, like a rose trampled to the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all else. That's beautiful. It's not right, but it's beautiful. Uh, and because here's, we see into Jesus, here's Jesus' own words. Nobody better testify than this, you know? He's not singing, you and you and you. And um, Camper and I had a, a heresy sing off this morning. He should have been there. But anyway, that's, um, and, and I think most vividly, I remember reading some time ago about John Piper causing a little stir, I guess, from some of the visitors in his church when uh, the children's ministry, I guess, had their, you know, their Sunday school materials and the kids have their take-home papers. And the, the bottom line on this one says, God loves himself far more than he loves you. Um, and <laughs> you imagine being a visitor to that church that day and saying, what kind of a place is this? I mean, Jesus loves me this way. This is, you know, this just seems to be wrong. And it, it, what we need to recognize is that Jesus's primary passion being for the glory of God in no way negates his love for us. In fact, it does something that we need to recognize. First of all, it takes the focus off of us. He's focused mostly on God and we are loved by God, not because we deserve to be loved. There's nothing we can do to mess it up. We're loved by God because he loves us. So God's glory is revealed in loving people like you and me. But God is self-contained, God is self-sufficient, God is self-satisfied, and there's nothing we can do to mess that up. He loves us, Jesus died for us, not because he needed us, but that God would be glorified in loving a people that needed to be saved, needed to be redeemed. And Jesus reveals this in this passage when he reveals that his passion is 
for the glory of God. And then an awesome thing takes place here. When Jesus prays, glorify your name. The voice of God spoke audibly. It's one of only three times in the New Testament that God speaks audibly. And he says, I have glorified it. And I'm going to do it again. In other words, God has been glorified in the person of Jesus because in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, we know what God is like because everything that Jesus is, is God who has come in the flesh. And in just a couple of days, after you die and I raise you, then there'll be no doubt. My name will be glorified. And that leads us to Jesus' sense of it. What is his purpose as well? Because we wonder what Jesus came to do. And Jesus tells us that his purpose is to do his Father's will. See, when he's praying, that we see in verse 27, Father, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. His, what he understands is this. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so that should grab our attention if we want to know what is the primary purpose for which Jesus has come. It's for what is about to take place. And it is a signal to us that Jesus' primary purpose is not to come in to teach us, though he does teach us. It's not that we are lost and on the wrong road and we just need somebody who knows and through their instruction they can point us in the right direction in the way that we can live. His primary purpose is not even to provide an example of what we are to be and what pleases God, although that certainly is true as, as well because we see in him true godliness to depths that I can't fathom. He says, my purpose is for this hour, and what was going to take place in that hour is that he says he came to be lifted up. In fact, he must have said it a couple of different times because he says at one point, we'll look at it in a moment, when I'm lifted up, this is going to be the result. And then the people talking with him said, and a good question, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And that's not in our text. So... Clearly, as he was talking, it was quite clear that he must be lifted up. The people had heard that, and his purpose was for what would take place on the cross, that he would be lifted up on that cross. And yet, even the phrase lifted up is one that is vitally important for us to understand the purpose for which Christ had come. It's one that would have ringed, rung, ringed, rung, whatever, uh, whatever the word is. If I don't butcher a word, you'll wonder where you are. Anyway, um... In the ears of certainly the religious leaders that were there and probably most of the Jewish people, the Greek people may not have recognized that they were there, but those who uh, had grown up in you know, the synagogue Sunday school would have probably recognized the phrase lifted up. It refers back to what took place with the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness. In Numbers 21, we are told that there was a time while the people were wandering that they became a little tired of all of this nomadic life. Meals were somewhat mundane. They weren't sure where they were going or when they were going to stop, and people get a little edgy. It's understandable. And when they got a little edgy, they got tired not just of their life, but they got tired of God, and they began to rebel. Some just grumbled. Others openly rebelled. And in order to bring discipline and bring them back, the Lord brought upon them a plague of snakes or 
a whole bunch or a den of snakes that were all over. And some of the people were getting bitten and these were poisonous snakes. And so people were getting bit and they died when they realized that they were in this circumstance, they began to cry out and ask for deliverance and Moses speaking to the Lord, the Lord said, okay, here's the remedy. Make a bronze snake, put it on a pole and lift it up. Now I have to imagine Moses thinking for just a moment and certainly the people when he brought that up saying this is a trick thing because you know we've made bronze things before and you didn't like it much. In fact, that's part of our problem. And the serpent, does that make any sense? I mean, they're the problem. And the serpent is a representation of Satan who is in the garden. And we're going to lift him up. And then the promise of God says, when the pole is lifted up, anybody who looks upon that, they will be healed and set free. And as perplexing as it is, it was not only God's remedy for their circumstance, but it was also a foreshadowing of what was to come. See, that pole with the bronze serpent represented what Jesus' hour. See, Jesus, who himself knew no sin, he became sin, and therefore the serpent is a great representation for the sin that he became, that God's wrath was poured on. And then he would be lifted up. But whoever is to look upon him who was lifted up and believe for the purpose that he had died, you would be healed. You would live for eternity. When Jesus is using this language very intentionally, its very uh, point is to let them know that when he is lifted up, and we're told, he told them that he had to be lifted up so they knew what kind of death he was going to die. So he was preparing them so that when it happened, the light bulb would go on and, and they would recognize, not only did he say this, not only is it impressive that he knew, but connecting it to the promise that God had made, that he is that Messiah. His purpose was to die not simply be an example. And then what is interesting is Jesus makes a couple of statements immediately after that. And these statements provide a summary of the promised blessings to those who trust in him being lifted up. In fact, more than that, they are the things that are going to take place, um, even when some will believe and, and some will not. And we see those in, beginning in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up on this earth, will draw all people to myself. There are three things that we see here that Jesus is promising that are the effect of his death upon the cross. I'm going to take the last one first. In fact, many of us are are probably familiar with it, but he says that when he is lifted up, his death, which is always in the scriptures, coupled with his resurrection. It was always the plan. It didn't just happen, but his death is going to be the thing that will draw people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It is the belief in his death for us that would unify people that have tremendously different backgrounds that come from everywhere and are not just dying for the Jewish people, but people will come from everywhere. Second, he says, now is the judgment. And it's interesting because it's unusual to have two nows. Jesus is saying now twice in, in, in the same sentence. But now is the judgment. And, and there, there's a sense in which there is a judgment that is still to come. But the decisiveness of what was going to take place in that hour when he was lifted up, it has this effect. The, the ultimate judgment upon everyone in the world, in all of history, 
is going to be based upon where you stand in relationship to him being lifted up. It's not a matter of the performance. It's not a matter of, of the depth of knowledge. It's a matter of do you believe that he was lifted up as sin on our behalf and in believing you were therefore forgiven because he has paid the punishment that we deserve? Or do you not believe that? In which case, you're left on your own to stand on your own record and we all fall in terms of that. So the judgment that is actually to be executed later has already been decided at the point when Jesus was lifted up. And the answer in our place is determined by whether or not we believe or disbelieve the purpose for which Jesus had come. But the third one is really particularly interesting to me um, here, second in, our, in terms of the order of the passage, but the, the one that we haven't touched on. Um, and for some of us, we, we may already know this, but we don't think about it. We don't talk about it very much. It says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And so the natural question would be, who is the ruler of this world to whom Jesus is referring? And the quick answer is, it is Satan. Going back to the garden and going back to the fall when there, you know, the, the sound of the crunch of the fruit had barely left the garden, God immediately comes to um, Adam and Eve, and Satan is there as well. And while Adam and Eve knew that they were up a creek and had some trouble, God's words to them would be a comfort, but Satan being present in basically what he had to understand is this is, well, Adam and Eve, you're going to have some things to deal with. Satan, you really messed up, and you're really going to pay. In Genesis 3.15, in what Bible scholars call the proto-euangelion, and yes, I am aware that I've given you two concepts that you can work into, con into conversations this week, the hypostatic union and proto-euangelion. And I'd like to hear about your conversations that you can work this into this week. But the, meaning the first announcement of the gospel, the first evangel. Here's what God says to the serpent with Adam and Eve presence. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall crush your head, and you shall crush his heel. In other words, the prophecy of a time that would come is that, that God was going to send a deliverer who would, you know, certainly be bruised, and bruised in Hebrew, bruised and crushed are used interchangeably. And so he would, you know, hurt this offspring. But nothing as compared to the offspring who's going to crush and through all the Old Testament and until the time of the cross, God seems to have allowed Satan to have usurped a little bit of authority and reign, and he had freedom to do certain things. It was still under check. Uh, you can read Job uh, and, and see how, how that works. But, and so Satan has been having some level of rule in this world, and yet that time was coming to an end. But you notice that God said something that's really kind of crazy here, even in that promise. Speaking to the serpent that your seed and her seed are going to clash. There's going to be a, a battle there. And what's crazy is women don't carry the seed. The Hebrew word there is Zareth. And even though the kids have gone out, I'll just put it simply this way. The Zareth, the seed, is the guy's part of making a baby. But he says it's going to be the woman's seed. And so God gets an F in biology. No. 
it's telling us that he's going to do something that is quite amazing. And in the history of the world, there has only been one woman who has given birth without the benefit of the male seed. And her name is Mary. She gave birth to a son whose name is Jesus. And Jesus is that promised seed. Now one of the things that I didn't recognize until this week when I was thinking through this is that Jesus is the promised seed. I mean, I, I, that part I already knew. What Jesus had said in the conversation we looked at last week, which is the same conversation. You know, the seed must die and go into the ground. Jesus is the promised seed that was promised from the garden. And he's the seed who's about to die. So that the fruit of life can be blossoming in those who belong to him. And that was what this hour was for. He had come to die. Now, Satan was certainly well aware of this. He knew from the time that God had made this announcement that his, his days were numbered. And he worked through history to try to stop this. I mean, if nothing else, you think of the, the birth narratives of Jesus. And he had called for uh, widespread uh, killing, genocide of all of the Hebrew male children. So that, you know, if you can't peg the one, get them all. And if Jesus is never born, then he's got no problem. And then in the temptations, the third temptation that Jesus encountered in the wilderness, Satan came to him and he offered him the kingdom if he would just bow to him. Now, in one sense, we would say, well, big deal. I mean, offer me something I already have and, you know, the kingdom is already mine. But what Satan was doing there was offering the easy way out. In other words, your way, you're going to suffer and die. My way is, yeah, you bow down and I'll let you run the whole place, the easy way out. You'll still be able to tell people what you believe right and wrong. But Satan was offering them the easy way out because he was very well aware that if Jesus died, his authority is over. Jesus' response to him is no cross, no crown, no deal. The purpose of Jesus Christ is to die and the benefits are outlined here for us in our passage. And we see what is true for all of us is evident in the passage. People have to respond. What do you do with this? And we see at the last few verses here that people are responding. In verse 34, so the crowds answered him, we, we've heard from the law that the Christ lives for, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? It's a good question. And who is this Son of Man? And Jesus responds in a way that seems sort of cryptic. He starts talking about the light. We see that in, in verse 34. The light is among you for only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become as sons of light. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using the imagery of light and showing that he's only going to be with them to make the reader, the people who have heard about it after the fact, think deeply, and, and the people that he was talking to then, think deeply about these things that you're hearing and that you're seeing. The difference between light and darkness. And it, it goes back even, the responses of the people that we can see are evident even in the response to God speaking in his affirmation of Jesus when God said, I have glorified my name and I'm going to do it again. We're told that the people there, 
that heard a noise. Everybody heard a noise. And Jesus said, you know, that noise that you've heard, that was for your benefit. But you have one group of people who thought it was thunder. Just God's voice sounded like thunder to them. And you had another group of people who said it must be an angel speaking. They didn't hear the words, but they, they knew something. And these people would certainly, those would be the natural responses of some of the people be gathered because the, the Sadducees of the day, they had all the religious uh, you know, degrees after their name, but they were mostly humanists, you know, secularists. They're, they're, they didn't really have, faith didn't play a part in their worldview. And so it would make sense that people like the Sadducees or would be the humanists that they would have heard thunder. They would have, whatever the noise was, you attribute it to this natural order of things. Pharisees were very religious and they believed in the spiritual and in the supernatural. And so they were saying it's an angel. Now, I, I don't know if they heard like angel and you know, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, a lot of Catholic friends that told me that the nuns told them in their classes that you know, every time it thunders, it's the God's bowling or something. So moving furniture around. So maybe they were more closely related than I thought. And those are not true, just in case anybody's wondering. Um, <laughs> but they all heard it, but they responded. And I think that there is something of an imagery here that Jesus is confronting with what he's telling the people in the end. He is saying that it is neither religion or irreligion that has enabled you to see the light, but it is by believing in the Son of Man who has lifted up on our behalf. See, all the religious practices don't help us. And that rejecting religion and just looking at the natural order doesn't help, but in ultimate need, it's who believes. And I'm going to finish with three practical applications that I'm going to touch on very quickly that are consistent with those who believe. The first one would be this. I would say that we would do well to follow the example of Jesus when our own souls are troubled. In other words, in this life when we experience the difficulties and we experience pain and we are in fear of what is going to come next, there is no better prayer that we can pray than, Lord, be glorified in this. It's not wrong to pray, take away my suffering and take away the circumstance. Jesus never said that it was wrong. It just was not his purpose. But whether God takes it away or not, we can be a people that are committed to his glory and praying that he would use us and that God would be glorified in whatever our circumstances which aligns us with God's purposes rather than trying to get God to be aligned with ours. And life is much better when we find ourselves in his story rather than trying to make him uh, a small part in ours. The second would be this, is that we would do well to live as a people who know that when Jesus was lifted up, the battle was already won. In other words, when we experience our hardships and when we experience loss, and we will, sometimes it'll be the loss of somebody that we love. Sometimes it'll be the loss of our health. Sometimes it'll be the loss of our economic stability or through the loss of a job, whatever. There, we experience loss and all of them are painful. And I don't want to minimize that. But when we see our losses, our suffering in light of the bigger story, the bigger picture, we see them differently. Let me illustrate what I mean. If you are an Eagles fan, or just don't like the Patriots, 
and you pop in that game today and watch it again, you will have a totally different experience than you had last Sunday night. See, it won't matter to you whether it was the third or fourth quarter, whatever it was, when the Patriots took the lead again. You won't care. Game's already over. It won't matter that when you're ahead and Tom Brady is leading the team down, and he's done this so many times before, and he's putting them in a scoring position that they could tie it up and send it overtime and possibly win this game. You won't care when he's throwing the passes downfield. Each one feeling like you're going to lose because you already know the game is won. We lose things. We experience hurts. And they are very real. But we experience them differently when we recognize that they are the hurts, but the game has already been won when Jesus was lifted up and came out of that grave. Remind yourself what Jesus has accomplished. And lastly, may we be a people who recognize that Jesus, when he was lifted up, drew people from every nation. The Olympics are not the only thing that are global. The Church of Jesus Christ. And that should have practical implications for the way that we live our lives. I'm not going to move into the politics because I don't have the time nor the inclination to deal with the complexity of the issue, and I don't have the definitive answer. But it should affect our view of the refugees in the world. And that shouldn't go unnoticed that Jesus is calling people from everywhere. But what I can say for certain is we all, if we're part of the family of God, and he is calling people from a tribe and nation, we all are to be involved in some way or another. What is it that we are doing as church? What are we doing as individuals in order to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? So this is Jesus his person, his passion, his purpose. And we have an opportunity to respond. Father, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see Christ and that we would treasure him more deeply. That we can identify with him in his suffering as he identified by, with us by suffering for us. That we can also identify with him in his 